How's it going, everyone? Welcome to the fourth episode of American Memoirs. I'm your host, Bo Gersnich, the dude cuckoo enough to spend two years reading all of the U.S. presidential memoirs, and now I'm here to share some of the interesting stories and perspectives from my studies. In this fourth episode of American Memoirs, we're going to change up the storytelling a little bit. I'm going to dive in with you uh, to experience the history in real time. So much of the dialogue that I'm going to share is made up, but all the events are historical and can be referenced in either uh, Bush's memoirs or military records. Uh, additionally, any letters or diaries, uh, they are direct references. So uh, with that being said, I hope that you enjoy. The light flicks. A hand raises against a dirty white face to shield a flame from long enough to light the cigarette. The soldier takes a deep, long hit. He holds the smoke in for a moment before the pressure releases, slowly filling the air with the smell of burning tobacco. It doesn't stay with them for long before a gust from the Pacific wisps it away, never to be smelled again. The group of soldiers laughed with each other, fooling around on the deck. George watched from a few feet away, leaning against the cold metal frame of the USS San Jacinto. The smoke from his comrades' cigarettes flashed brief images in his mind the last two years. When he joined the Navy, he was nothing but a bright-eyed 18-year-old just out of high school. Like any young boy at the time, all he wanted to do was fight in this war. Two years in, he got his wish. His face grew to a quick grin as his gunman, Leo Nadeau, approached him. Hey, Bush, let's go check out the plane. It'll be flying again today, and I can't be losing my pilot anytime soon. Bush chuckled. <laughs> a pilot's no good if there's no one shooting off the plane. The two wandered over to their Avenger, giving it a thorough review uh, like they did before every mission. The USS San Jacinto was a longboat and it could hold about nine of them at any given time. It was named for the final battle of the war for Texas independence, so it was a fitting that the youngest pilot ever trained in Corpus Christi, Texas, would be commissioned on it for all these years. Bush and Nadeau had been flying with each other for all of the war. With it being now September of 1944, they and the rest of the Navy had gotten to within 600 miles of Tokyo. The end still seemed so far but the light at the end of the tunnel was glimmering. As Bush tested out the wheels for the right pressure, he let out a sigh. Ah, you know, it's a shame that you're not coming with me today, Nadeau. It'll be a lot different without you covering for us. Leo scoffed, spitting on the ground before raising himself up. <laughs> I reckon so. You know, I'd be up there with you if I could. I heard Will White wants to go get a good look at the island. You know those intelligence guys, always planning for something. Bush nodded his head. Yeah, he's in for a rude awakening, though. Chichijima is a feisty place. Hopefully, the anti-aircraft we took out yesterday will help us out today. But I'll say, that anti-aircraft here has got to be worse than it was in the Philippines. Those mountains sure do provide a lot of cover. Hopefully, we can hit this target this time and before they hit us back. Leo nodded back at him. Sure hope so. Hitting that radio station would be great. 
They've been transmitting our movements for way too long now. Taking Chi-Chi is one step closer to the mainland. You betcha, Bush smiled back. His adrenaline was surging, as it always did before a flight. The sun was out, which was glimmering against his young, pale face. His bright blue eyes glided against the plane, checking every crevice with such intensity that he became completely unaware of the world around him. Suddenly, a hand on his shoulder startled him back to reality as he jumped back from a smiling John Delaney in his face. Oh, geez, John, don't scare me like that. <laughs> John laughed. Hey, you, you ready, Bush? Will White is shaking in his boots to get in that thing already, he shared. Delaney was the crew's radio man. It was his job to communicate with the rest of the operation, making sure that their actions were in sync with the others. Together, the three of them had been quite a group. Bush ran his hand through the, his short hair and he smiled. Yeah, I think we're about ready. How's the rest of the crews looking? All good across the board. Looks like we've got three other VT-51s today and a couple Hellcats, so it should be a good run. Bush replied, let's hope so. In a few moments, White joined the group and the crew got the plane into place ready for takeoff. Nadeau wished them luck. Now, don't you get too comfortable in there, White. Hope you know I'm going to want that seat back now, you heard. Nadeau joked, hitting the palm of his hand against the metal of the plane. White laughed nervously. Don't you worry, you'll have it back in a jiffy. Nadeau's face tightened, but seriously, good luck out there, guys. I'll be praying for you back here. The three men nodded confidently and in unison. You've got nothing to worry about, partner. We'll see you soon, Bush declared. Bush, now in the cockpit, went over the plan one more time. All right, y'all. The goal here today is to take out the radio facility. With some of the anti-aircraft taken out yesterday, we should be able to sneak in today, drop our bombs, and head back to the ship. White, you're covering for us. Make sure you're talking with Delaney and we know where the return fire is coming from. That way we can hit them back hard. You got it? Uh, you got it, pilot. Ready when you are. With engines roaring against the sound of seagulls flying in from the island, the plane soon took off. The flight was quick. From the aircraft carrier to the island, made faster by the adrenaline that made them feel like a floodgate opening after a long season of rain. Bush glanced over to the pilot next to him in formation. They nodded at each other, with Chi-Chi in sight. The planes descended slowly. The island was a cove in the shape of a large backward sea. The green mountains surrounded the blue waters and they were remarkable. As the formation descended, it was almost difficult to see such a place of beauty being a mechanism of war. That is, until the black clouds began to form. Projectiles started to fly from the mountains as the aftermath of the smoke consumed the greenery. One of the Hellcats was the first to get hit. The crew ejected from the plane almost immediately, floating down in parachutes to the island below. The bullets were audible as they flew by the plane, narrowly missing everything except the faith of the crew that this would be a smooth sail. Bush knew he would have to act fast. Strap in, boys! We're going in! He took the plane into a nosedive. The vehicle dove in such an angle that it would felt like the crew was standing on its head. 
Bush knew where he had to go, though, so they pressed on. The radio station became visible. Just a few more seconds and it would be within target. Bullets were flying by him, but none seemed to hit. His face squished with excitement, a grin fueled by adrenaline consumed his face until a large thud and lift of the plane wiped that face pale. Bush heard an explosion in the back. We've been hit, one of the crewmen yelled. Delaney echoed the news with the other radio men. The radio men chattered back as Bush stabilized the, pay, the plane. They want to know if we could complete the mission, Delaney shouted. The helmet he had on was slanted. His face looked disheveled. We're too close not to, Bush yelled back. Bush pulled the plane upright, and a few moments later, the four 500-pound bombs were released from the plane. They hit the radio station directly. The three men cheered. Great hit, Bush. Can you get us out of here now? Plane is not looking too hot. The damage on the plane was audible, with loud thuds coming from the engine. They still seemed to have power, but they all knew it wouldn't be for long. I'll try my best. Bush maneuvered the plane with a quick 180, gunning back to the, for the San Jacinto. As they flew away, White covered with as much fire as he could, but his shot seemed off, potentially shell-shocked from the previous blast. As the plane glided away from the island, the damage it had stained became more and more apparent. Flames and smoke had begun to consume the cockpit. They weren't many yards away from the island before they knew what they had to do. Everyone out, Bush shouted. With flames at their back, still roughly 1,500 feet from the ocean, the crewmen jumped. Two bodies made it out of the plane, while one became consumed in flames. The pair struggled to release their parachutes in the air, grasping for the strings frantically. In a bit of relief, Bush wrangled his parachute open, but his partner wasn't so lucky. As Bush floated down to the ocean, he caught a brief glimpse of his partner's body diving fast and helplessly into the water. It wasn't long before Bush had joined him. He scoured the surface, looking for any sign of his companion's survival, but there were none. He waited in the water helplessly for hours. The crew he was responsible for was now dead. His body was weighed down by his wet uniform, held above water only by the strength of his mind, which was fighting, too, the helplessness and remorse of his situation. An older man shakes himself back awake. The daydreams that have been grasping his mind finally release their grip. His eyes blink with aggression to scare back the haze. The scenes outside the window of the house come better into focus. He gets up to get a better view of the snow-covered branches and the birds jumping from tree to tree. They're chirping audible from inside the house. Camp David is a beautiful retreat, a gem of the American governmental system. As he stares out the window, another man soon enters the room. As he joins him, the apprehension of the news he bears weighs on his shoulders. When the old man notices him, he speaks up. Oh, uh, hi, Brent. Any news? Uh, evening, Mr. President. Cheney and Powell are just back from the Gulf. They'll be looking to meet in a few. Their observations were positive. We think we'll be able to strike fast after the deadline passes. George nods his head in approval. 
Great. That's awesome. And any word from the Egyptians or Syrians? Uh, well, there is some hesitation on their participation, but no signs point to their withdrawal from their commitments. Ah, I see. Thank you, Brent. I'll join you in a few. Brent Scrocroft was the national security advisor for Bush and his most trusted advisor. A Henry Kissinger protege, Brent had spent much of his professional career preparing for an international conflict like this. It felt like he had not slept since the day Iraq invaded Kuwait. All right, I'll let the group know. Thank you, Mr. President. Brent motioned back for the door he came from. His slender frame was apparent as he walked. The bags under his eyes and disheveled look of his balding hair gave weight to his age. Just as his body had made it halfway through the flame, he turned back to George. Oh, and George, Merry Christmas Eve. George smiled. He stood a head taller than him with a better filled out frame. While it had been 50 years since his military career, he still stood with the same confidence that he did on the USS San Jacinto. He affirmed back to his advisor, Merry Christmas Eve, Brent. The door shut and George was alone again. He paced the room for a moment before settling into his work desk and chair. From the bottom drawer of his desk, he pulled out his diary and opened up a fresh page. He begins to write. It's Christmas Eve and you think of the families and the loved ones apart. I read 10 or 15 letters, all of them saying, take care of my kid. Some saying, please don't shoot. Others saying, it's not worth dying for gasoline. And on and on it goes. But the cry is, save my boy, save my boy. Then I sit here knowing that if there is no movement on Saddam's part, we have to go to war. But we're in war, though. Kuwaiti families being devastated and scared and even killed this very night. The principles has been set. We cannot fail. He sighed, letting the pen waver a little before firming up his grip to write some more. I'm getting older, but does that make it easier to send someone's son to die? Or does that make it more difficult? All I know is that it's right. I know the consequences if we fail and I know what must what will happen if we let the 15th slide by and we look wimpish or unwilling to do what we must do. I'm sitting here on Christmas Eve, waiting for caroling in our little church service. I keep thinking of the Gulf, and I see the faces of the young pilots I met when we first got to Tehran. Let us go! Let us go! Let us do our job! We can do it! And then the Marines and the Army Guts, they're young, young, so very young. And I think of the Iraqi babies, and yet I think of the evil that is this man. He has not only to be checked, but punished. And then we worry about how we handle our relations with the Arab countries. They say, I don't concentrate on domestic affairs, and I expect that charge is true. But how can you when you hold the life and death of a, young, of a lot of young troops in your hands? George paused, placed the pen onto the desk, and closed the diary once more, putting it back on its place on the top of the bottom drawer. As the country moved nearer to the possibility of war, there was much hesitation about the prospect of the liberation of Kuwait. 
The military intervention would occur against the backdrop of Vietnam. The military leaders at the time had felt that they had been ordered into Vietnam by civilian leadership and they had been left to hold the bag when the political climate changed. The conflict had begun in August of 1990, when 100,000 Iraqi military members moved across the border and began the invasion of their much smaller neighbor, Kuwait. Due in part to their previous eight-year-long war with Iran, Iraq had amassed a large debt to its oil-bearing neighbor, which was coming due. Within the first few days of invasion, Iraq's leader Saddam Hussein had taken full control of the country with 20% of the oil reserves of the globe at the time and was able to cancel all Iraqi debt from the previous war. This was the first international conflict in the post-Cold War era. The leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, was moving the country in a direction of cooperation with the West, which had not been the case since World War II. For the first time since those days, the Soviet Union and the United States were operating on a joint front, condemning the actions of Iraq and their invasion. Much of the world was moving in lockstep, for that matter. Bush Sr.'s foreign policy demanded cooperation and relationship-driven diplomacy. His goodwill in the Arab world found him powerful allies in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Morocco, and many others who were contributing to the attempted diplomatic resolution and peace found in an Arab way. A deadline had been given by the international community to Saddam and the Iraqi army. Leave Kuwait by January 15, 1991, or there will be consequences. Seven days had passed since Christmas Eve, and yet there were no movements on the occupation of Kuwait. Bush and his top advisors stayed gathered at Camp David, plotting all the situations and outcomes that would come to them. At this point, there were no other priorities, only Kuwait. The president, sitting back in his chair as if he had not moved in seven days, held the phone to his ear. Brent, this time, had sat across him, listening patiently. Oh, well, I understand your concern, Dick. Just know that it would be a grave action on the Democratic the Democrats' behalf. You want to be on the right side of this. The phone muscled back a response. It was inaudible static to Brent. Bush replied, Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how it goes. Goodbye, Dick. As, Bu as soon as Bush hung up the phone, an eager Brent inquired, Trying to block funding, are they? Bush nodded his tired head. The two of them had acquired years of aging from the last week alone. Jefford is playing hardball. Says the Democrats will cut funding if we go ahead without congressional declaration of war. Brett sighed. Doesn't he realize the stakes? Bush replied, for himself, maybe. Let's get Bob Michelle to talk to him. I'll get someone on it. Bush paused for a moment. Uh, you know, I... I think that we should try one more time to meet with Aziz or Saddam. The French are pushing for it, and I think it would go a long way with Congress. Uh, I don't know if that's necessary, Mr. President, Brent uncharistically slugged back in his chair. But if you think we should, I wouldn't oppose. All right, let's do it then. And have you heard anything from Powell? Bush leaned in closer. Brent replied, military is targeting sometime between January 18th and January 22nd. 
but the dates seem to be drifting. The president scoffed. That's unacceptable. This needs to happen in the January window. Brent sat back up. I understood. I'll give Colin a call right now, if you'll excuse me. Please do. Brent got up and exited the room, as he had been doing for weeks now. The weight of the situation was heavy on Bush's shoulders. He pulled out his journal once more, this time tearing a few sheets out from the back. He jotted down a letter to his kids. Dear George, Jeb, Neil, Marvin, Doro. I am writing this letter on the last day of 1990. First, I can't begin to tell you how great it was to have you here at Camp David. I loved the games. I loved Christmas Day, marred only by the absence of Sam and Ellie. I loved the movies, some of them. And I loved the laughs. Most of all, I loved seeing you together. We are a family, blessed. And this Christmas simply reinforced all of that. I hope I didn't seem moody. I tried not to. When I came into this job, I vowed that I would never wring my hands and talk about loneliest job in the world or wring my hands about the pressures and trials. Having said that, I have been concerned about what lies ahead. There is no loneliness, though, because I am backed by a first-rate team of knowledgeable and committed people. No president has been more blessed in this regard. I have thought long and hard about what might have to be done. As I write this letter at year's end, there is still some hope that Iraq's dictator will pull out of Kuwait. I vary on this. Sometimes I think he might. At others, I think he is too simply unrealistic, too ignorant of what he might face. I have the peace of mind that comes from knowing we have tried hard for peace. We have gone to the UN. We have formed a historic coalition. There have been diplomatic initiatives from country after country. And so here we are, a scant 16 days from a very important date, the date set by the UN for his total compliance with all UN resolutions, including getting out of Kuwait totally. I guess what I want you to know as a father is every human life is precious. When the question is asked, how many lives are you willing to sacrifice, it tears at my heart. The answer, of course, is none. None at all. We have waited to give sanctions a chance. We have moved a tremendous force so as to reduce the risk to every American soldier if force is to be used. But the question of the loss of life still lingers and plagues my heart. My mind goes back to history. How many lives might have been saved if appeasement had been had given way to force earlier on in the late 30s or earliest 40s? How many Jews might be spared the gas chambers? Or how many Polish patriots might be alive today? I look at this crisis as good versus evil. Yes, it is that clear. I know my stance must cause you a little grief from time to time, and this hurts me. But here at year's end, I just want you to know how I feel. Number one, every human life is precious. Number two, principle must be adhered to. Saddam cannot profit in any way at all from his aggression and from his brutalizing the people of Kuwait. Number three, and sometimes in life, you have to act as you think best. You can't compromise, you can't give in, even if your critics are loud and numerous. So dear kids, batten down the hatches. Senator Inouye of Hawaii told me, Mr. President, do what you have to do. If it is quick and successful, everyone can take credit. 
If it is drawn out, then be prepared for some in Congress to file impeachment papers against you. That's what he said, and he's 100% correct. And so I shall say a few more prayers, mainly for our kids in the Gulf, and I shall do what must be done. I shall be strengthened every day by our family's love, which lifts me up every single day of my life. I'm the luckiest dad in the whole wide world. I love you. Happy New Year, and may God bless every one of you and all in your family. Devotedly, Dad. The last part was difficult for him to write. As he finished, he rested his head on his crossed forearms on the desk. He sat there alone, consumed in the analysis of the consequences of his actions. Following the new year, the president's party flew back to D.C. from the Camp David retreat. The pressure from Congress was growing hot. By January 3rd, Bush was in meetings with both Republican leadership and the bipartisan leadership as a whole. Perception in Congress was shifting as a result. Oh, well, whatever you're doing seems to be working, Mr. President. But I can't tell you overwhelmingly, Democratic Speaker of the House Tom Foley shared. There is a belief that authorization of the use of force is now passable. Even Jeffert has been applauding the extra diplomacy. Oh, that's great to hear, Tom. Do you think the measure could be put to an immediate vote? A long debate would be counterproductive, Bush inquired. (laughs) The congressional leadership laughed. (laughs) You can't shut off debate or stifle it, they replied, irritated. And so on the debate went for the next two weeks. Attempts to negotiate a withdrawal of Iraqi forces continued. Those early January weeks kept the world on edge. On the 9th, Secretary of State James Baker and Iraqi Foreign Minister Tariq Aziz met in Geneva, Switzerland to try and starve off war. For seven hours they met, but either side refused to budge. Iraq would not leave Kuwait. The meeting was the final straw for diplomacy. Congress passed authorization for Bush to invade when he found it necessary. By January 13th, Congress gave its approval for war in the thinnest margin ever. Everyone slowly funneled into line. Unsure if the march they headed down would be another Vietnam, 20 years of war to no gain, and yet on they marched. By January 14th, the White House was filled with great tension. And yet, Bush was strangely calm. In his living quarters that evening, he reviewed his speech that he had been preparing for the announcement of war. That day, Over and over, he kept saying to Brent and the others, Once we attack with this awesome air power, how do we end it? How does he surrender? He will. I know he will. He cannot prevail against this. Before bed, Bush turned on the television news and sat for a while. He watched as a father kissed his soldier son goodbye as he shipped out to the Gulf. The boy choked up as the dad gave him a hug. Memories flooded back to Bush. Vividly, the memories of Chapel Hill, North Carolina in 1942 flashed in his mind as his own father hugged him goodbye. As a young 18-year-old, he cried on that train. He didn't know a single soul and was in for an experience into the unknown. The next day, the day the resolution from the UN was set to expire, all Bush could think about was how he would end the war before it began. He paced the White House grounds, dictating to his tape recorder. Quarter to seven, January 15th, about to get to work. 
I have trouble thinking with how this ends. Say the air attack is devastating and Saddam gets done in by his own people. How do they stop? How do we keep from having overkill? Most people don't see that as a scenario because they are convinced it will be long and drawn out with numerous body bags on the U.S. side. But I want to be sure we are not in there pounding people. I think we need to watch and see when our military objectives are taken care of in Baghdad and Iraq. He paused. The memories again flooded back to his mind. This time the weight was against his wet uniform. He could feel the water as it entered his lungs. Surrounded by the debris from the crash floating above the bodies of his dead comrades, he waited helplessly and alone. All he wondered at the time was, why me? Why was I the only one to survive? Why couldn't it have been John Delaney or Will White or any of the other planes that crashed on Chichijima that day? All he wanted was to be back on the USS San Jacinto that morning with all of them in a doe. The things that he would tell himself. As he floated in the water with nothing but his thoughts, fighting the water to not enter his lungs, the surface soon became disturbed. Pressure rose against his feet. Something was below him. For a moment, he tried to swim away, but as the submarine broke water, the crew shouted for him. Hey, pilot, we heard you might need some help out here. Care to come join us? Relief flooded the young man's body and soul. He wasn't alone anymore. Comrades came to rescue him. He quickly turned back around and swam for the submarine. Excitement consumed him. On each of his shoulders, the souls of his fallen crew swam with him. Brent shouted to him from the White House, waking Bush again from the daydream. Uh, Mr. President, the National Security Council meeting's about to start. Care to join us? Bush shook himself back to reality again. Uh, yes, coming in now. He walked the path back to the building and joined the group for their final meeting before the war. Discussions commenced on the air campaign, the timing of the president's speech, and when to inform each group of allies. Brent wrapped up the meeting with the final question. Oh, by the way, Mr. President, who should fire the first shots of the operation? Bush leaned in and smiled for a moment, thinking back again to the sacrifice his comrades made 50 years prior. He declared, the USS San Jacinto, of course. The air raids began on January 16th, lasting for a little over a month. After the air raids weakened defenses, the United Allied Forces conducted a ground invasion of Kuwait. Within 100 hours of ground invasion, all Iraqi troops were defeated within the country. The Egyptians and the Saudis were the first to free Kuwait City in a move that strengthened the influence and support of Arabic resolution. It was the decision of Bush and team to end the war there. While many called for the invasion of Iraq itself and the overthrow of Saddam, Bush would not allow it. He and Brent wrote in their memoirs in 1998, Trying to eliminate Saddam, extending the ground war into an occupation of Iraq, would have violated our guidelines about not changing objectives midstream, engaging in mission creep and would have incurred incalculable human and political cost. Apprehending him was probably impossible. We had been unable to find Noriega in Panama, which we knew intimately. We would have been forced to occupy Baghdad and, in effect, rule Iraq. The coalition would have instantly collapsed. 
the Arabs deserting it in anger and other allies pulling out as well. Under those circumstances, there was no viable exit strategy, we could see, violating another of our principles. Furthermore, we had been self-consciously trying to set a pattern for handling aggression in the post-Cold War world. Going in and occupying Iraq, thus unilaterally exceeding the United Nations mandate, would have destroyed the precedent of the international response and the aggression that we hoped to establish. Had we gone the invasion route, the United States could conceivably still be an occupying power in a bitterly hostile land. It would have been dramatically different and perhaps a barren outcome. Five years after Bush Sr. wrote these words, his son followed a different path. The 2003 invasion of Iraq and disposal of Saddam shocked the Arab world. In 1991, it's estimated that 100,000 Iraqis died in the defense of Kuwait. The 2003 invasion of Iraq accounted for an estimated uh, 500,000 deaths, according to PLOS Medicine, which was five times the amount. While the Arab world supported the military intervention of 1991, the 2003 invasion was a hotbed of international tension. Bush Jr. found only a singular Arab ally in Kuwait, while other longtime European allies voiced their opposition. I bring up this story because unlike Bush Sr., Bush Jr. did not personally know the horrors of war. He did not know its loss, its difficulties, and its purpose to the degree that his father did. He only knew the hawkish desires of his military advisors and the basic sentiment of the country in the wake of 9-11. Bush Sr.'s hypothesis on the occupation of Iraq proved true. America would not publicly leave Iraq for eight years in a costly and demoralizing occupation of a foreign country. Post-occupation, America still maintains thousands of troops in the country and hundreds of millions of dollars of aid annually, and that's as of 2023. I want to thank you for listening to another episode of American Memoirs. I hope that you enjoyed it. Please continue to listen and chime in and uh, let me know what you think. Thank you very much. Have a great day.